2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning, which records for us a very important section of Scripture concerning the value of Christian suffering. Now that idea of suffering having value is a foreign concept to most people's thinking. Most people think that any type of suffering and any type of discomfort is something to be avoided always at all costs. This is how the world thinks. If it makes you uncomfortable, then it must be bad. By the way, there are a lot of people within the self-proclaimed visible church who hold to this value system as well, who agree right along with the world that if it makes you uncomfortable, then it must not be good. Most obviously, there are those who think and teach that God always wants you to be happy, and he always wants you to be healthy, and he always wants you to be successful. And so if you're going to and so if you in life ever start going through anything that that is anything less than that that makes you uncomfortable in any way then that must be bad. That must mean there is some promise you haven't named and claimed yet or there must be some problem that you haven't spoken truth into yet. Why do they teach that? It's not because you find it in scripture. It's because according to the idol of the American dream, if it makes you uncomfortable, then it doesn't matter what the Bible says, it's not good. They agree with the world, and it's obvious. And if we're to be entirely honest, then we can begin to agree with that same worldly value system as well as Christians, can't we? Although in a more subtle way. I remember coming across a book that was once written for teens that was humorously titled, If God loves me, then why can't I get my locker open? It's humorous, but it also stings because it puts into words what we're often prone to do on a daily basis. Question the very existence of divine benevolence because of our temporal, earthly circumstances. We do this in a thousand different ways, even though we often don't think about it. Why am I sick? Why am I tired? Why am I having to deal with this persistent health issue? Why am I having to deal with this persistent financial issue? Why am I having to deal with this persistent sin issue? Why am I having to deal with this persistent societal issue? Why doesn't it all just go away? Why won't God just get rid of it? If we're to be honest, we more often than not buy into the world's lie that if it makes me uncomfortable, then it must not be good and must be avoided at all costs. Listen, that cannot be further from the truth of what God's word teaches us, that suffering and discomfort has great value in the life of those who belong to Jesus. This is what Peter has been teaching repeatedly over the last few weeks. He introduced the value of suffering back in verse 17, if you recall, of chapter 3, when he wrote, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Life's not about comfort. In fact, it is often suffering and discomfort that imparts spiritual value to the life of a believer. 
Paul backs up Peter's teaching on the value of suffering over in Philippians 1.29 when he writes, It has been granted to you, literally it has been graced to you for the sake of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name. Now I want you to notice there what he says, it's not only faith in Christ that's a gift of God's grace, but also suffering for Christ is a gift of God's grace also. Suffering in Christ is a gift from God. It has value in the life of a believer. Paul again recognized the value of discomfort and the value of suffering when he wrote later in Philippians 3.10. He says, I count everything as loss that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He says, I'll throw everything away that I may, listen to this, share in his sufferings and become like him even unto death. Suffering has spiritual value in the life of a believer. And that is the central thought that is, that is kind of the center of, this, of what this passage grows from. Peter is finishing his answer as to why it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He's making his case. And we know that it is better to suffer rather than to sin because first, suffering brought victory to Jesus who is our example as we saw last week in verses 18 through 22. And second, we know that suffering for doing good if that should be God's will is better because suffering brings freedom to Christians as we'll see today in chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. Why is it better to suffer rather than to sin? It's because righteous suffering holds the key to spiritual freedom on a daily basis. See, as elect exiles in this fallen world, there are three main enemies that you and I fight every single day. There are three main enemies who seek to cling to us tightly, slow us down, and trip us up in our pursuit of God's glory and the honor of Jesus. Those three enemies that we face every single day are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, in this passage before us today, Peter's going to show us that righteous suffering is often what God uses us to free us from the grip of those mortal enemies while we're here on earth. In verses 1 through 2, Peter's going to show us that righteous suffering frees us first from the flesh's passions. Second, he'll teach us that righteous suffering frees us from the world's pressures. That's in verses 3 through 5. And then third, he teaches us and he shows us that righteous suffering frees us from the devil's power. So why is it better to suffer for Christ rather than to sin alongside this world? It's better because righteous suffering sets us free. It frees us increasingly from the flesh's passions, the world's pressures, and the devil's power. So this is the freedom that suffering brings. And so with that in mind, please stand with me out of reverence for the word of God as I read our passage this morning from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to you and I this morning. Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. 
with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of God whom we praise with an upright heart when we learn his righteous rules. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for Peter's teaching. We thank you, Father, from the experience from which he spoke. He understood what it was like to every day wake up under this expectation of inevitable suffering. It was the plan that you chose him to be under while he was here on earth. And we thank you that from that, as he strove to learn to walk with you in faith and in endurance and in faithfulness, that you taught him these lessons and that by your spirit, he recorded them for us so that we who follow the same savior, who follow the same Lord, who follow in the same steps who face inevitable suffering as elect exiles, we thank you that we have this passage set before us so that we can remember ultimately that you are in control and that even in the hardest circumstances of our lives, you are still working and we can trust you. We thank you, Father, that though there are many things that we suffer under, that we would long to be free of. You are seeking a deeper freedom and you are committed to setting us free from that which truly entangles us. We thank you that you are such a good shepherd. So shepherd us through your word today by your spirit so that we might manifest the grace and the goodness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, especially by how we handle hardship. Give us grace to learn. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to understand, believe, and obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. John Newton, in one of his many letters that he wrote to his church members while he was alive, he once wrote, I resolved to take as little notice of our fierce contests, controversies, and divisions as possible. My desire is to lift up the banner of the Lord, to draw the sword of the Spirit, not against names, parties, and opinions, but against the world, the flesh, and the devil." That spirit would be a welcome relief among the people of God today. Where believers recognize that what matters most in life is not battling against names, parties, or opinions, but battling against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And where we as believers would come to love most that which helps us fight against those three most mortal enemies of the soul. Well, Peter's going to show us today that righteous suffering is actually one of our greatest friends in that regard and in that battle. Nothing helps us in our battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil like having to suffer for righteousness' sake. Using military terms, Peter begins by reminding us 
that righteous suffering frees us from the flesh's passions. And this is the extent of what we'll be considering this morning from this passage in verses 1 through 2. Peter writes these words. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, how? No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter begins by saying, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, you ought to live, believer, with the same mindset that Jesus had when he died. You say, well, what mindset did Jesus have when he suffered and died? Well, we don't have to guess. All we have to do is look back. Because we're given a clue back in chapter 3, verse 18, which was the last time that Jesus or that Peter explicitly referred to Jesus' sufferings. Peter writes there in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Peter writes there, For Christ also suffered once, why? For sins, why? That he might bring us to God. Jesus in his suffering, I would like to propose to you this morning, had three objectives in mind during his suffering and death. First, to destroy sin. Second, to draw near to God. And third, to bring others with him. That was Jesus' mindset in his suffering and death. That was Jesus' mindset. First, it was to destroy sin. Verse 18 says that he suffered, why? For sins. 1 John 3, 5 and 8 tells us this. You know that Christ appeared in order to do what? To take away sins. The reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus' mindset as he suffered in the flesh was to murder sin. It was to destroy sins and to break its power that it held over God's people. Second, it was to draw near to God. Verse 22 tells us that this Christ who suffered, as mentioned back in verse 18, in verse 22, we're told he has gone into heaven and he is at the right hand of God. And as Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. So you have to ask yourself, well, what was the joy that was set before him that Jesus pursued even through the cross? It was to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God, to draw near to God. So Jesus' mindset as he suffered in the flesh was to destroy sin. Jesus' mindset as he suffered in the flesh was to draw near to God. And Jesus' mindset as he suffered in the flesh was also to bring others with him. Verse 18 says that he suffered once for sins. Why? So that he might bring us to God. Remember what Jesus said to Mary after his resurrection from the dead in John 20 verse 17? He said, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Jesus' mindset as he suffered in the flesh was to destroy sin, draw near to God, and bring as many other people with him as possible. And notice Jesus pursued those three goals without any concern for self-preservation at all. Jesus was going to destroy sin. He was going to draw near to God, and he was going to bring others with him no matter the pain, no matter the personal cost, no matter the discomfort, no matter the loss. No matter what it took, 
Jesus set his face like a flint, and he was radically committed to destroying sin, drawing near to God, and bringing others with him, even if it meant suffering and death. That was Jesus' mindset in, in death. And it is to be, brothers and sisters, it is to be our mindset in life. As Peter says next, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This is a call for every follower of Jesus to completely reorient your priority set. To be radically committed above all else to destroy sin. To be radically committed above all else to draw near to God. And to be radically committed above all else to bring others with you as you go to glory. Even if it means suffering, discomfort, and if God wills it, even death. Those are your priorities as a follower of Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. We are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. No matter what it takes, I'm going to kill sin in my life today. No matter what it takes, I'm going to draw near to God today. No matter what it takes, I'm going to encourage others to come with me today. No matter the suffering, no matter the personal cost or loss. I will honor Jesus above all in this life, even if it costs me my comfort, even if it costs me my life. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 3, we are called to share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Think how he thought. Beloved, sin is ever crouching at our door and we need to arm the security system of our lives by developing this constant mindset. Suffering is a part of my Christian life. Therefore, today, I will have no other concerns, since I know that suffering is going to come. I'll have no other concerns other than to honor Jesus. I'll have no other concerns than to kill, and I'll have no greater objectives than to kill sin, draw near to God, and bring others with me, no matter the personal cost. I find immense satisfaction in this, believers. Just the simple command that in the midst of an increasingly crazy and complex world that we live in, believer, take heart. Your to-do list that God has given you today is actually quite simple. Kill sin. Draw near to God and encourage others to come with you. And repeat every day. That's your to-do list. Kill sin, draw near to God, and encourage others to come with you. Every day, no matter the conflict, no matter the cost. I know that you and I and the world fills our to-do list with so many other things. But to follow Christ faithfully as elect exiles in this world for the glory of God means that nothing takes precedent over those three things. Kill sin. Draw near to God and encourage others to come with you. Arm yourselves with that same way of thinking. And then at the end of verse 1, Peter shares why we shouldn't be afraid of embracing that reality of inevitable suffering in our pursuit to destroy sin, draw near to God, and bring others with us. We shouldn't be afraid of that mindset because, end of verse 1, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. See, Peter's encouraging us here that if we've begun to suffer in the flesh for doing what is good and right in the sight of God, 
Well, that's not a reason to be afraid, right? Oh no, why am I suffering? Something must be wrong with my life. That's what some people will teach you. Scripture actually says, oh no, you're suffering. This is what's going on. Then that could mean you might need to rejoice. Rejoice. Why? Because that experience of righteous suffering in the pursuit of Christ Jesus simply indicates the reality that spiritually you have been born again. And you are in the ark of Christ. Whoever has suffered in the flesh, he says, has ceased from sin. See how that, how closely suffering is tied to salvation there. Suffering is a hallmark, is an indicator of the new birth. That's sobering, but we see this truth all over the pages of the New Testament. Jesus taught this in John 15, 19. Because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Suffering is tied to salvation. Paul taught this in Romans 8, verse 17, when he wrote, We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And again in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who live to des- live, desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Suffering is tied to salvation, and Peter teaches that here. If your commitment to Christ has never caught you any, never cost you anything, then it will never gain you anything. Because you don't actually have one. That's what scripture teaches. To be truly united with Christ means that your heart is transformed to be absolutely committed to him, which means that it will cost you something in this life. Jesus didn't talk about salvation being finding a comfy lazy boy and putting up your feet. He talked about it being a pearl in a field that you sold everything for in order to obtain that treasure. That's what salvation looks like. Peter teaches that here as well. Those who have truly been born again by the will of God will grow to become so committed from the heart to do what is good and right in the sight of God that they will suffer for it. This is what believers do. Now, unbelievers won't do that. They won't do what God says and suffer for it. They'll capitulate. They'll compromise. They'll draw back for the sake of comfort. It is those who are truly born again that press into Christ even when it hurts. Those who are truly born again will characteristically, not perfectly, but characteristically do good, suffer for it, and endure. And that's what Peter is teaching here. Whoever has suffered in the flesh for doing what is good is someone who has ceased from sin. You sit there and say, "Uh, excuse me? Well, let me clarify what he means there. Uh, That is simply another way of saying that you've been born again. See, one of the realities of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and been immersed into him, as we saw introduced last week, is that having become one with Jesus, we have become united in his death, namely his victorious death over sin. Paul touches on this glorious reality and over in Romans 6 verses 1 through 7 when he writes this, which we read this morning. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. In other words, Paul's saying that's crazy talk, right? Why? End of verse 2. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? You say, wait, 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 I've died to sin? I don't know about that. Well, listen to the rest. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, you become united to his work that he accomplished on the cross. Then verse 6, he says this. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Why? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See, once we trust in Jesus Christ, we're no longer enslaved to sin. 
though sin still dwells in us, it no longer reigns absolutely over us. As Paul says in verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So we've been cut off from sin's dominating power. We've been cut off from its dominating pull. In Jesus, we've been set free from sin. We've been set free from the condemnation of sin. That's in the past tense. When we first trusted in Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been set free from sin's power. And one day we're going to be set free from sin's presence. So whoever has suffered in the flesh for doing what is good, whoever has suffered in their daily battle to kill sin, draw near to God and bring others with them, that's someone, Peter says, who has ceased from sin. That is someone who's been born again. That is someone who is saved. And Peter says, listen, if you've truly been immersed into Christ, then you need to live the rest of your life with the mindset of Christ. As Peter says in verse 2, you've ceased from sin. Sin's power has been broken in your life. Why? Why have you experienced this breaking of sin's power? Verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, before you came to Christ Jesus, you never did anything else but follow sinful passions, right? You didn't wake up the morning and say, I'm going to try really hard to be disobedient to my parents today, but I think I can squeak it out before I go to bed tonight. You didn't have to work hard at it. What? It came naturally. You didn't have to work really hard to say, okay, if I think I, I might be able to lie in this one instance, I might just be able to. It just slips out of your mouth before you can even think about it, right? That's the way it was before you came to Christ. Sin had a dominating power over your life. You followed the passions of this world. You were enslaved to it, dead in your trespasses and sins. But God in Christ has broken the power of sin over your life so that you can at last do what pleases God and not live for what pleases you. That's what being born again looks like. It's a breaking of selfishness in your life. It's the development of devotion towards Christ. Live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That was the mindset of Christ in death, and that is to be the mindset of us in life. Paul puts it this way in Romans 7, verse 4. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. When we are tempted to sin, we need to remember that we are dead indeed into sin and alive unto God in Christ, and we ought to act like it. We ought to act like it. By God's grace, we are not now what we once were. See, in your battle against sin, your approach should not be one of hopelessness. No matter what your track record has been this past week. Why? Because you know that in Christ, sin's power has been broken. What you need to do is humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you. Lean on him and on his power and has his grace. When we're tempted to sin, we need to remember that we are dead indeed into sin and alive unto God in Christ. We need to act at it. By God's grace, we are not now what we once were. The dominating power and pull of sin is broken in our lives. Do you believe that? Reckon yourself dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. And we now, by the power of God's indwelling spirit, we have both the ability and the responsibility to live according to the will and the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 15 puts it this way. Christ died for all, 
so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Suffering reminds us of this. You see, when our health, when our securities, when our comfort is ripped away from us, it reminds us that our goal in life was never health, security, or comfort. It was about pleasing and glorifying and honoring Jesus It is to live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God in whatever pathway he has set me on. As Ephesians 6, 6 says, we are to live as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Suffering moves us in that direction, away from carrying out our own will and towards finally considering and carrying out the will of God. Psalms 119, 67-71 states, It is good for me that I was afflicted, so that I might learn your statutes. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Notice, what was the tool that God used to bring the psalmist back from selfishly going his own way and back towards doing the will of God? The tool that God used was affliction. I don't know about you, but I would not be the... I'm not what I want to be. But by the grace of God, I'm not what I used to be. And one of the main tools I see that the Lord has used in my life to bring me from where I was to where I am is pain and sorrow. So that I might learn to love Christ. Righteous suffering is often the tool God uses to free us from the flesh's passions. We see this also in Hebrews. Hebrews 2.10 says that it was fitting that Christ, who is the founder of our salvation, should be made perfect through suffering. Well, you say, well, why is it fitting? It's because suffering is the path by which we who are in Christ are made perfect as well, are perfected as well. As he says later in Hebrews 12, verse 10, painful discipline, if we allow ourselves to be trained by it, yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So righteous suffering has a sanctifying effect if we allow it. It works to free us from our fleshly passions, and it makes us more like Jesus, which is why you can read really weird passages of Scripture and suddenly make sense of it, like when James says in James verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, that we should count it all joy when you suffer. So why? It's because God is going to use that to make you more like Jesus. And that's why Paul says, I'll boast in my weaknesses. I'm content in my sufferings. Why? Because God uses that to make you more strong. So why would you run, believer, from suffering or discomfort no matter what, when oftentimes it is the tool that gives you what you really want, to become more like Jesus? This is the hope that we can have as believers. God will not waste one single trial or frustration that ever comes into your life All pain that comes your way in Jesus has a purpose. And part of that purpose is to work on setting us free from fleshly passions. And to remind us once again that we're not here on earth as elect exiles to get what we want. We're on earth as elect exiles to live for the will of God. So brothers and sisters, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus and arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That my purpose for today is not to accomplish my dreams, my ambitions, or my to-do list, 
The non-negotiable is not getting the kitchen clean or the living room picked up or the lawn mowed or the vehicle fixed. The non-negotiables for the day is to kill sin, draw near to my Savior, and bring others with me along the way. And if I haven't done that, I may have accomplished a thousand different things, but I haven't lived as an elect exile, and I haven't done the will of God. That is often why we can't get our lockers open. That is often why we experience frustration, hardship, and pain in this life. It's not always, it's not usually because we did something wrong. It's often to remind us that we are here as elect exiles, not to do our own will, but just like Jesus, to do the will of him who sent us, no matter the cost. Well, doing the will of God starts right now. Beloved, I have to give the application to this because this is what's been ripping me apart all week. Beloved, kill sin. Don't hold it close to your chest. You will get burned. Kill sin. If there is a sin that you have been hiding and tolerating over the last week or longer, you need to repent of that sin right now and confess it to God. This is the first step towards killing sin in your life. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sin and by the power of the indwelling spirit, turn from it. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Live no longer for human passions but for the will of God. No matter the cost, right now, commit yourself to killing sin. Confess it to God and get other Christians in your corner. Live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Kill sin. And by the way, the most effective way to do that is second, to draw near to God. See, in James 4, 8, James immediately follows up his call to resist the devil by saying, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The implication is obvious. The most effective way to destroy sin in your life is to draw near to God and behold his glory and to rely on his power which is the ultimate reason for why we exist, just as Adam did in the garden. It was to walk in communion with God. It was to draw near to Him. Believer, there might be a thousand things to do on your to-do list, but if you don't spend time doing the one most necessary thing that God asks of you, you have not lived as an elect exile for the glory of God that day, and sin will be hardening you. In my own battle against sin, I can tell you there's been nothing more effective. You can do a thousand other human tools but it is falling in love with Jesus that kills sin in your life. We must draw near to God through the word and through prayer no matter the cost. We must live no longer for human passions but for the will of God. Again, it doesn't matter if you've cleaned your living room for the day. I know that sounds crazy because you're like, you haven't seen my living room yet. Trust me, can't get much worse than ours sometimes. 
There's nothing more important than have I spent time with the Lord. No matter the cost, kill sin. No matter the cost, draw near to God. And finally, third, no matter the cost, bring others with you. John 18, 37, Jesus said this, For this reason I was born. For this reason I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Brothers and sisters, that's why you and I are still here. It's not to live our best life now. It's to recognize that we are elect exiles, headed to glory. And we are yearning that by God's grace we might be used to even, if it be God's will, just save eight more souls. This is why we, you and I are still here to bear witness to the truth. We don't walk this pilgrim pathway to glory alone. We are to be bringing others with us and encouraging them to kill sin and draw near to God also. To both saved and unsaved family members and friends, our call is the same. Follow me as I follow Christ. Through suffering, through pain, let's follow Jesus together because he is the way and he has the words of eternal life. I hope you don't spend this next week living your Christian life alone. You weren't meant to. God has given us here at this church a pilgrim band to help us walk this path, not alone, but together for the glory of Christ. Let's do this together. Bring others with you. Bring others with you. For what will it profit you if you keep a clean house and a Betty Crocker cookbook yet fail to evangelize your own children this week? What will it profit you if you gave your children the most magnificent house and all the clothes and toys they'd ever want with all the proper etiquette that basic morality demands only to watch your children lose their own souls because you failed to give them the gospel? What will it profit you if you end up first in your graduating class, students, but never talk to one of your classmates about Jesus and never encourage them to kill sin and to draw near to Jesus? What will it profit you if you don't bring others with you, even if it's just eight more souls? Live no longer for human passions, before the will of God. No matter the cost, kill sin this week. No matter the cost, draw near to God. No matter the cost, work on encouraging others to come with you. Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live no, in the, for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. May God give us grace to do just that this week, no matter the cost. Kill sin. Draw near to God. Bring others with you. Check that off every single day. We'll have to look at the rest of the passage next week, but for now, this is the word of God from 1 Peter 4, 1 through 2, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience in the fervent care of one another until Christ, who is our joy and fulfillment, appears. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. (laughs) Thank you for reminding us, dear Father, of what truly matters. Thank you 
for Christ and His work for us. I thank You for the Spirit who has made us living stones in His house of worship. We thank You that what You have called us to do, we can do by Your grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Help us, Father, this week not to live as inhabitants of this world. Help us to live as elect exiles traveling through this world. Help us to kill sin, the sin that is overwhelming those who are lost right now. Help us to draw near to you, the you, the person that that all of our unsaved family members and friends and co-workers and classmates must come to know. Help us to bring others with us so that Christ might be more greatly honored in our day. Help us to be about this mission, Father, we pray, above and before everything else no matter the cost. Help us to kill sin, draw near to you, and bring others with us this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.